Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to John chapter 1. John chapter 1 this morning. We'll be considering together as we look into this text, Jesus, the incarnate word, God, the word made flesh. As we track through this passage together, we'll see this central truth that to know the incarnate word is to experience unimaginable glory and goodness. To know the incarnate word is to experience unimaginable glory and goodness. So if you have a copy of God's word there, let's read now together in John 1, beginning in verse 1, and we'll read the entire prologue, these 18 verses. John writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and yet, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Well, last week we introduced ourselves to John's prologue, really the word before the rest of his gospel. And we saw these words, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And yet immediately after these introductory verses, into being, after being introduced to this word, this logos, we meet another man, a man by the name of John the Baptist in verses 6 through 8. We just read about him. Now John, unlike the word, was not the main character. Rather, he serves as a witness to this word, who we see here is the light. And this life is the light of men. Verses 9 through 13 introduce us more into what this light does for us. To those who reject him, they cannot know God, but to any who receive him, we can be made children of God through faith. And yet as we read these intervening verses, verses 2 through 13, there's something noticeably missing. In verse 1, there is a word that appears three times. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. But for the next 12 verses, that word, word, doesn't appear. And yet we arrive in verse 14, and we find this same word, the word became flesh. And so what we're doing here is linking the truths in verse 1 down to verse 14. 
In the beginning was the Word, the Word was God, and the Word was, became flesh. And so what we have going on here is the infinite, eternal creator God becoming a human being. The one who never grew tired now grows weary. The one who is the source of all joy and light now knows grief. The word became a human being. But Jesus becoming human isn't just a theological truth to leave out there on the shelf. You see, this moment changes history. In the way that John presents this, he presents it in light of history. There was Moses, and then there was Christ. And Christ changed everything. And no matter what you try to make of history, you can use the letters A.D., to measure years, or BCE to measure years, but either way, Jesus Christ is the dividing line. There's before Christ and after Christ. There's before the incarnation and after the incarnation. The Word became flesh, and this changes everything. Because you see, before Christ came, no one had ever seen God. Before the incarnation, God's glory remains hidden, verses 17 18. Now, this, there's a great contrast here, and, and it's really twofold. On the one hand, you have a contrast in time. There's before the incarnation and then after the incarnation. But there's also a contrast in how God relates to his people. In Exodus chapter 19, God's people stand at the foot of Mount Sinai. And God speaks to his prophet Moses. You see, the bulk of the Pentateuch, the first five books of your Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, reveal to us the story and content of God's covenant with his people. You see, first in Genesis 9, God makes a covenant with Noah, and then in Genesis 12, it's with Abraham, then in Exodus 20, it's with Moses, and later we'll find in 2 Samuel 7, it's with David. But each of these covenants is an iteration of the same overarching plan of God. And verse 17 tells us the law was given through Moses. Now, there's a temptation to think, but it wouldn't be right to think, that each of these iterations is sort of God kind of tweaking his plan and then hopefully getting it right in the end. Oops, that one with Noah didn't work. Let's try Abraham. Ah, that's no good. Okay, Moses, David, can we get this right? That's not what's going on here. You see, each of these covenants is part of God's great overarching plan pointing to the coming one, Jesus Christ. God's plan has always been Jesus. Now, many of you this morning, in fact, some of you are looking at them right now. Many of you, if you don't, you have them in your purse or in your pocket. You have one of these devices. Now, this here, I think this is the iPhone XR, iPhone XR. Now, some of y'all are up to the iPhone 12. Some of y'all I've seen have the iPhone 5. Those things somehow have still survived. They're still sitting around. I'm not calling anyone out here this morning. But in each of these, what we have are different iterations. And each later iteration is an improvement on earlier ones. In fact, when we come out with software or new programs, we call it beta testing. It's early adopters. But God didn't perfect his redemptive plan. He accomplished his perfect plan. Galatians 4 illustrates it for us 
this way. The Old Covenant, the Old Testament, is like a guardian or schoolmaster, someone that's accountable or responsible for us, but it's not kind of the full adoption, the full inheritance. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. In other words, God set up a legal guardianship, but his intention was full adoption through Jesus Christ. God planned redemption from eternity past. Ephesians 1 tells us before the foundation of the world. But before Christ came, God remained in some sense hidden. Verse 18 says, no one has ever seen God. Or you might put it this way, no one has truly seen God or seen God as he truly is. Moses encountered God in a burning bush in the wilderness. Then in Exodus 33, Moses asked God, show me your glory. Yet God knew what Moses didn't know. That for Moses to encounter the visible, manifested glory of God would be to be struck dead. And so God said, Moses, you can't handle that, but what I will do is this. I will hide you in a crevice in the rock, and I will cover you with my hand, and then my glory will pass by. And after I have passed by, you can see the backside, the edge of my glory, but no one can look on the face of God. God's glory remained hidden for ages. The old covenant, Hebrews tells us, is shadows, pictures, images, shadowy images of what's to come, and yet we cannot see clearly. The full glory of God remains veiled or hidden. And yet, in preparation for the manifestation of this glory, God sent a witness to prepare the way. God's glory is witnessed, verse 15. Luke chapter 7 Jesus says about John the Baptist that there has been no one born of women greater than John. Yet John's life indicates to us that he is but a window, a lens through which God's glory can be seen. John's greatness doesn't lie in the fact that he is a great prophet, although he is a great prophet. It rather lies in the fact that he comes face to face with what Moses could only imagine. Jesus is the true and greater prophet. No one has ever seen God, but John the Baptist does. He looks God in the eye, and he knows what a great prophet this Jesus is. Deuteronomy chapter 18. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like Moses from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. John comes, and some people think he's the prophet, but he sees that prophet and he knows he is the one, and I'm not worthy to tie his shoes. You see, John's greatness lies in his eyewitness testimony to Jesus. In John chapter 5, Jesus is confronting various Jewish leaders, and he tells them, there are four witnesses that clearly demonstrate to you who I am. My own works, I heal the sick. I make the lame walk. I give sight to the blind. He says, the Father witnesses to who I am. The Father spoke from heaven. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And he says, the Old Testament scriptures tell you who I am, the coming one. 
But there is a fourth great witness identifying Jesus Christ. He says that fourth witness is John the Baptist. John is a great prophet. He's great because of his closeness to Jesus. He was chosen by God before he was born to prepare the way for the Messiah and then identify him for who he is. So when John knows Jesus is coming, he cries out, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Here in John 1, if you track down a few verses to verse 30, you'll find this. John the Baptist speaking, this is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. You see, what he's saying is, Jesus appeared in time after John, but he existed before John. He is eternal God, and John serves as a witness to this. Now, it's easy for us to sit here today and kind of assume or underestimate the importance of this. But in John chapter 8, Jesus is in yet another conflict with Jewish leaders. And he speaks to these men. And he says to them, before Abraham was, I am. Now, this is no accident that he speaks this way. He's making a claim to being eternal God. Before Father Abraham existed, Jesus existed. Jesus doesn't pre-exist John only. He pre-exists their father, Abraham. They know that to claim to be this kind of person is to claim to be God himself, so the Jews pick up stones to stone this prophet. You see, when Jesus came, God reveals what had been long foretold. The incarnation of Jesus Christ is the glory of God revealed. Moses stands on the mountain of God in Exodus chapter 19. He sees the edges of God's glory. As he descends from the mountain, he's so affected by this encounter with a living God that people can't bear to look at him. He has to veil his face. Encountering the glory of God is so life-changing. Just imagine you're Moses. You hear these rumblings. You, you know God is in this cloud present on the mountain. You encounter him and your life is transformed. And you ask God to show, show you his glory. You could not have imagined. There is no way that you could imagine that for God to reveal his glory would be to reveal it in a human being. A crying baby in a manger. Yet John 1.14 tells us that the full revelation of the glory of God comes this way. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. God revealed his glory in a human being. And John's language is shocking. The Logos doesn't appear to be a human being. The Logos doesn't adopt a human form. He became human, literally flesh. The clearest revelation of the infinitely great creator God is a human being. When Jesus fell and scraped his knee, he bled. When he worked beside his earthly father, Joseph, on a hot summer day, he sweated and stank. 
As he lay there in the manger, it wasn't really no crying he makes. When he got hungry, he said, Mama, I want some food. In the Old Covenant, after God's people left Egypt, they traveled through the wilderness. And as they traveled, they would each day as nomads set up tents. But the Levites, priests, they had particular responsibilities. You see, they too erected a tent, but this tent was the dwelling place for God. It was the tabernacle. And there, in the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, lived, dwelt the presence of God. Sometimes seen in a pillar of fire or cloud, but housed there in the tabernacle. John tells us that the Logos dwelt among us. He says, literally, he pitched his tent here. The word tabernacled among us. In other words, the dwelling place of God is now a human body. The word became flesh. Now, don't make anyone nervous, but take a look around you here for a second. I mean, there are people here. And I don't mean to insult anyone, but we're all pretty ordinary people. I mean, there are no seven-foot superhumans Jesus, were he to be sitting here this morning, would feel largely like us. Well, not quite like us, because as all can see, I don't tan. Not quite like these people here, because Jesus was a dark-skinned Jewish man, but a very ordinary human being. But inasmuch as he is human, he is as human as you and I are. There's nothing more ordinary. And yet somehow God tells us these ordinary things reveal his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father full of grace and truth. The humanity of Jesus reveals the glory of God more beautifully than a burning bush. More beautifully than a pillar of fire. Or clouds leading the way through the wilderness. As the end of verse 18 puts it, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Literally explained him in detail. If you want to see God, look to Jesus Christ. So how does the incarnation allow us to see God's glory in a way that we haven't before? I mean, if this human is so ordinary, is he glorious? Well, verse 14 describes the shape of his glory. He is full of grace and truth. Then again, verse 17, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So in the Old Covenant, the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, the inner sanctum houses the presence of God. Only the high priest can enter, and he only once a year on the Day of Atonement to offer sacrifice for the sins of the people. Yet now, God is among us. He lives and breathes and moves and walks. So how then is the glory is the glory of God full of grace and truth? Exodus thirty three eighteen. Moses begs God, "Show me your glory." How is it that God answers Moses? He says, I will make my goodness pass 
in front of you. He could speak in a voice of thunder. He could appear, boom, in a cloud of fire, like he did with Elijah on Mount Carmel. But the Lord answers this way, I will make all my goodness pass before you. You see, the glory of God is seen supremely in the goodness of God. And then as God appears before Moses on Mount Sinai, he passes by and speaks these words, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God's steadfast love is his chesed. It's it's a covenant love. It's a sign of God's merciful, gracious love throughout Scripture. God abounds in chesed, in grace. And his faithfulness is a Hebrew word, emet, a word meaning truth. God passes before Moses and says, I abound in grace and truth. Now, there are a lot of things in the world I'm not an expert on. But I know a good cookie when I see one. Now imagine with me this morning that we have a batch of freshly baked chocolate chip cookies. And you approach this pan, they're hot, they've just come out of the oven. And you see them here and you're looking at them. And as you're evaluating which one you're going to take, there are multiple ways to evaluate this. You know, how much you like it done? Do you like them crispy or do you like them soft and just kind of folding? Do you uh, like the ones that have a lot of chocolate chips? Or do you look for the one that has, like, it's at the end of the batch, has one chip left in it? No one wants that cookie at the end. You see, you want the cookie that's full of the goodness, that's full of those gooey, melty chocolate chips because it's the combination of everything together that makes it. But if you're hunting for those chips, you grab the wrong cookie. You want that cookie, you pick it up, it melts in your mouth, and you feel the perfect combination of flour, sugar, baking powder, and chocolate chips. You want the full goodness, full of chocolate chips. God's character is full of goodness, full of grace and truth. As you read God's word, you encounter different aspects of God's character. God's character is like a diamond. You hold it up to the light, and as you turn it, it refracts different elements of light. You see different things as you look through it, things that you could have never imagined before. You hold it up, and you turn it, and you see God's justice. You turn it a little bit more, you see his holiness, his righteousness, his truth. But as you turn each aspect of God's character, what you will see permeating every aspect of the glorious nature of our God is his goodness. His justice is a good justice. His holiness is a good holiness. His truth is a good truth. His righteousness is a good righteousness. Merciful goodness permeates every aspect of God. God is good. God is also infinitely great. And when you see God's greatness for who he truly is, you long for God's goodness. 
Because you know, apart from his goodness, we have no hope in the face of his greatness because you see, unlike God, we aren't good. God is full of justice, mercy, grace. We're not holy, just, and good. We're unholy, unjust, and not good. Perhaps you say, well, not me. I'm a pretty good person. Okay, perhaps. Have you ever told a lie? Now, don't answer too quickly. Maybe we could ask it this way. Have you ever told the truth in a way that it made you look better than the other person in your story. So you had a conflict at work and you told what happened. And maybe consciously or unconsciously as you recounted this to your spouse, you shared it in a way that made you look a little better than you actually were. Ever been walking down the street, taking a second look? Have you ever walked through life and you don't say what the Pharisee said, like, I thank God that I'm not as other men are, but you might think something like this. All those people that don't work hard, that don't pull their weight, that want a free handout, I mean, those of us that do work hard and do pull our weight, we're a little better than they are. You see, we're all guilty. God doesn't measure us according to our moving standard that we apply to ourselves as beneficially as we can. There is an infinitely just, infinitely righteous, perfect character of God, and that is a standard, and we all fall short. We all fall short of God's perfection. We're all sinners condemned justly by the law of God. So when we look at the greatness of God, we better hope God is good. But no matter how good you could imagine God to be, God is actually better. You see, not only is God good in himself, he looked at our sinfulness, knew we couldn't meet this standard, knew we couldn't make it. It's not just us. The prophets failed. Priests failed. Kings failed. But Jesus, the perfect prophet, priest, and king, king came and succeeded in every way. All the old prophets, priests, and kings had failed. As infinite God, Jesus is able to bear the weight, the infinite penalty of our sin. What would crush us, Jesus can bear because Jesus is God. And yet Jesus is truly human. He is able to appropriately die as a human being for human beings. It is God. He rose again and conquered sin and death and hell. And anyone who places their faith in his goodness, not our own, can have life with God forever. Would you turn from your sin, from believing the lie of your own goodness, and trust this good creator? Will you trust Jesus today? Our God is full of goodness. And being good, he is also generous. Glory shared, verse 16. Now, verse 16 is a little bit tricky because it all hinges on one word. And it's a word that can seem 
rather insignificant, but it's really important in understanding the verse, and it's the word upon. Grace upon grace. Now, this Greek preposition is like a lot of English words that can have uh, different meanings. So let's take a little preposition, two, two letters, on. Okay? Hey, can you do this for me? I'm on it. Well, what does that mean? It's like, I'm, I'm going to do it. Hey, pastor, your kid's on the table. Like, on top of the table. Okay? That means something different. Or uh, what about this? Hey, mom, dad, I made it. I'm on the team. Hopefully they don't mean like on the team like you're on the table. Right? We understand these words mean different things. Turn on the light. Well, the way that this is translated makes it sound, grace upon grace, makes it sound like there's this abundant, super abundant grace of God. So much grace. And it's true that God's grace is overflowing. And it could be described this way, but that's probably not what this is actually saying. There are some clues here that make us think that what this means is actually grace in exchange for grace. And let me try to help us see this. Look at verse 17. So contextually, what's he comparing? The law was given through Moses, and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. In Exodus 33, 17, the Lord speaks to Moses on the mountain and says, you have found grace in my sight. So the covenant with Moses is a gracious covenant. It's a communication of God's grace to his people, but it's nothing like the covenant that Jesus will bring. The grace through the Mosaic covenant is exchanged for the grace of the new covenant. The law came through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And the good news is the responsibility in these covenants completely changes. You see, the grace offered through the Mosaic Covenant is completely dependent upon our faithfulness. If you obey, I will surely bless you. But the grace of the New Covenant is not like the old. The flow of the responsibility completely changes. Because Jesus has obeyed, I have blessed you. The new covenant is based upon the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, not upon our obedience. I have blessed you, so respond in obedience. Or as John says it, from his fullness we have all received. John 1.14, we see the glory of God in Jesus Christ. John 1.16, we receive his grace. You see, to know Jesus is not merely to see him as he is. It is to experience Christ in all his fullness. And the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus shares his glory with us, his goodness with us. Colossians 2 puts it this way, For in him, in Christ, All the fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him. Luke chapter 7, Jesus says, No one born of women is greater than John the Baptist, but I tell you, he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. How could this be? 
Because our greatness doesn't lie in us. It lies in the one we know. The one who is least in the kingdom of heaven can be greater than God because, or greater, greater than John because we are sons and daughters of God by faith. Heirs of his kingdom, not because we're special, but because we receive Jesus by faith. And when we receive Christ, he shares his fullness with us. Now, we've already tracked through this, so we're going to stick on the, the cookie theme here for a minute. Imagine with me this morning, we get out of church, you go home, and someone's you know, messing around the kitchen, and you begin to smell them. You smell those cookies baking. And then sure enough, soon there's a plate of cookies sitting on the counter. They're warm. You can kind of see the steam rising off them. And you see this plate of chocolate chip cookies in your mouth is watering already. And you walk up and you grab one of these cookies. And as it approaches your mouth, you can smell it and almost taste it. And you bite into this goodness only to discover these are raisin cookies, not chocolate chip cookies. Is there anything worse than looking for a good chocolate chip cookie and biting into a shriveled up grape? What could be worse? Well, there is something worse. Christians, churches that profess to know this glorious Christ, but substitute, instead of Christ-saturated preaching, teaching, singing, living, with the raisins of entertaining programs, events, or ministry business. It's, it's like biting into a cookie and knowing it's not right. You see, to know the Christ of the Word is to savor unimaginable goodness. When you meet this one, you long for the real thing. You don't want some shriveled up substitute. It's a richness that cannot be replaced by mere Christian activity. It's like when hearing the words of Christ read savor more sweetly and more attractively to you than getting together with inflatables and candy, then you know you're beginning to know Christ. It cannot be all the trappings. It cannot be all the attraction. Those things aren't bad, but they are a poor substitute for truly knowing Jesus. God has made himself known to us. The infinitely good, infinitely gracious, infinitely faithful, infinitely true God has come as a human being. His good grace is worth knowing. Knowing Christ is infinitely greater than merely acting Christian. 
Knowing Christ is infinitely sweeter than putting on a show. You see, to treasure Christ is to taste his goodness, to get a bite of the real thing. You want to spit that other stuff out. And as we taste the goodness of Jesus in God's word, we then begin to see Jesus' goodness more clearly in all of life. What we see here, we experience here. God is good. We get physically weak, but we know his empowering strength. We walk through loneliness, but we experience the truth that there is one who walks closer than a brother. His spirit lives in me. I know the sweetness of his presence. We think we don't have all we want. But in Christ, you have all you need. And in finding Christ, you will find that he is all you want. Oh, friends, the incarnation of Jesus Christ declares to us that the glorious goodness of God has come. And we have all received from his fullness Grace upon grace. Don't accept a cheap substitute in its place. Let's take a moment now and respond to God's word in repentance and faith. I'll give you a moment to respond to, God's personal, to God personally, and then I'll close this time in prayer. Let's talk to him now.